Just a quick note before we begin. This episode features adult language and descriptions of violence that you'd expect to hear in a podcast about the mafia. So if you have kids in the room, you may want to listen with headphones. Al Bruno was not alone on November 23rd, 2003, the night he was murdered. The Springfield mob boss was with a friend, another mob associate named Frank DiPergola. They had just left their Sunday night card game at the Mount Carmel Society Italian Social Club and were walking to Bruno's Suburban when the shooter opened fire. The gunman shot Bruno six times, but for some reason, he left DiPergola alone. Maurice Kearney, a Springfield police detective, questioned DiBergola that night. He asked if DiBergola got a look at the shooter. Did he hear his voice? Did he know who the shooter was? He just kept saying, I don't know who it was. I don't know what happened. I don't know is a typical mobster response when the police ask questions. They don't like speaking with the cops. But Kearney kept pushing. You walked out with him, you know, and then the guy gets shot. How do you think that's going to look? He says, I didn't have nothing to do with this, you know, I didn't have nothing, I don't know what happened, I don't know who the guy was. Just came up, shot him, and ran away, you know. Eventually, the police took DiPergola to the station, and they asked him more questions. They kept pressing, and finally, DiPergola admitted he saw the shooter, but he didn't get a good look. He had a dark-colored hoodie on, he was about six feet tall, I couldn't see him. DiPergola's description wasn't very helpful. Plenty of men are six feet tall and wear hooded sweatshirts. But Thomas Maliti, a police detective in the homicide unit, had a hunch Deeper Golan knew more than he was letting on. He said he had no idea who the guy was, which we think is a lie. I think he did know. Because he kept asking for Victor that night. I want to talk to Victor. I want to talk to Victor. Victor, as in Victor Bruno, Al Bruno's son. The police were puzzled. Why did Deeper Gola want to speak with Bruno's son so badly? Did DiPergola know something he wasn't telling the cops? Did he recognize the shooter? Well, a few days later, those questions were answered. It was only a day or two afterwards, one of our detectives got information. I think it probably came from Frankie DiPergola, probably to write to Victor. And Victor told somebody else, who told one of our guys, hey, it's this kid Frankie Roach out of Westfield, Mass. So we zeroed in on Frankie Roach. Frankie Roach was, in fact, about six feet tall and known to wear hoodies. So investigators wanted to find him and ask a few questions. Did you kill Al Bruno? Did you work alone? Or were you put up to it by someone else? And if they could get Frankie Roach to answer these questions, it could change everything. Because in my experience prosecuting mafia cases like these, you first need to get one person to cooperate. And often you need to start small, get one guy to flip, and work your way up to the ultimate target, the bosses. The investigators had a lot of questions, but they knew which one to ask first. Who the hell was Frankie Roach anyway? From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Up Against the Mob, the Springfield Crew. I'm Ellie Honig, a former organized crime prosecutor for the Southern District of New York. Episode 3, The First Domino.
What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. In the Mafia, killing a made guy, especially one of Al Bruno's stature, comes with consequences. One perk of being made is that no one, not even another made guy, is allowed to lay a hand on you. So murdering a made guy means you're risking your own life. If someone is brazen enough to take that risk, you'd expect they also had a lot to gain. Power. Money. Something to make the risk worth it. After all, when John Gotti took that risk and orchestrated a hit on his family's boss back in the 1980s, he became the boss of the Gambino crime family. So when Al Bruno was murdered, investigators assumed the shooter had everything to gain. They assumed it was an inside job, and the gunman was a member of the mob looking to take over Bruno's lucrative rackets and usurp his power. But Frankie Roach didn't fit those assumptions. He wasn't a member of the mob. He was essentially a nobody. Even Stephanie Barry, the crime reporter who knows everyone in Springfield, had never heard of Frankie Roach. When his name first emerged, I said, who is this guy? Like, I can find very, very little about him. So Barry looked up Roach in her newspaper's archive, and she found him in a few police blotters from Westfield, a suburb of Springfield. I talked to some of the Westfield cops, and I said, what do you remember about Frankie Roach? And the police captain said, I'll tell you what I remember about Frankie Roach. Fast. He was fast. He always ran away from the cops and would succeed most of the time. They could never catch him. Barry also learned that Roach's rap sheet was as thick as a phone book. In 1990, when Roach was just 17, he was arrested for stealing a car. In 1992, Roach was arrested for assault with a dangerous weapon, robbery, and stealing a car. He was sent to prison. In 1993, Roach escaped prison and stole not one, but two cars. He was caught seven days later. In 2000, Roach was arrested for breaking into a liquor store. When asked why he did it, Roach said, because they were closed. He had a reputation of being like a really bad drunk and a really violent guy when he got drunk. He don't drink a beer like you and I are going to have. He drinks like straight vodka. And it's just a real bad mix with his personality type. That's Thomas Murphy, a Massachusetts state police officer who used to surveil some of Roach's old haunts. Murphy says that when Roach drank, he'd get belligerent. Like this one time, about three weeks before Al Bruno was killed, Roach was hanging out at a local bar called Emo's. It's just this little hole-in-the-wall bar in a lousy area of Springfield. Roach is in there shooting pool with a couple of guys. One of the guys says something that Roach inferred was uh, disrespectful, and it just beat the tire out of him, really gave him a bad beatdown. The owner threw Roach out of the bar, and Roach wasn't happy about it. So he went and got a baseball bat. 
Roach returned later and just destroyed the whole bar, like smashed every glass he could get his hands on, mirrors, everything. Emo's may have been a dive bar, but it wasn't just any dive bar. It was under mob protection. So the owner ran to Al Bruno and told him what had happened. And Bruno basically said to one of his minions, like, I I want this kid Roach, get me this kid Roach. And he wanted answers and he wanted to uh, extract some type of reimbursement for all this. So Bruno basically sent a message, you know, you have to make reparations with this owner. And Frankie Roach was very, very defiant. But was Roach defiant enough to haul off and kill Al Bruno, a mob boss, over a bar fight? Officer Murphy wasn't so sure. It didn't meet the smell test that this Roach kid just decided to go hunt down Al on his own. It didn't sit well with us. The only way to solve the mystery was to find Frankie Roach. If Frankie Roach wasn't acting on his own, then there would be another group that would be very interested in tracking him down, a little outfit called the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Their mandate is to take down any organized crime. So if this was in fact a mob hit, it could be a big deal, a big opportunity. Which was not lost on Brian Warren, an FBI special agent in the Springfield office. If we could work up the ladder on a mob hit and people are looking at death penalty eligible cases, mandatory life, we might get people to cooperate and talk to us. If we can really crack this, We will get cooperation and really open the doors into the Springfield mob. Warren knew that solving Bruno's murder would not be easy. He needed all the help he could get, particularly from other law enforcement agencies, the Springfield PD and the Massachusetts State Police. But in the past, working together had been tricky. The three organizations didn't always get along. Springfield was a city, but it was still a sandbox and a small sandbox, and there's just no way that Mass State Police, Springfield, and FBI can work organized crime in the same sandbox and not trip over each other. And that's historically what had happened. But this time around, Warren was determined to stop everyone from tripping over each other. So he decided to get everyone to work together as a team. Thomas Murphy and I obviously agreed and saw the the vision that we needed to work together. We kind of developed a friendship. We had some tremendous Springfield homicide detectives working with us. Sergeant Tom Aliti. Brian's a complete gentleman. Hard, hard, hard-working guy. Warren asked investigators from the three agencies to sign a form saying they wouldn't share information outside of their small circle. They became their own little crew with their own code of silence. Once their signatures were on the dotted line, they could talk freely and share information and focus on tracking down their lead suspect, Frankie Roach. It wasn't long before investigators caught their first break. They got a lead on a phone Roach was using. We're going back to 2003 when digital technology is not where it is today. The Springfield investigators subpoenaed the phone records and their expert analyst went to work. He would input a lot of this stuff manually and have his ruler out there, one of those stiff with a little metal tip on it and go line by line and enter these things into the computer. And then we could use some filtering and analysis. The phone records revealed that after the murder, Roach skipped town and was living in a friend's apartment in Tampa, Florida. Now all the investigators needed was a warrant for Roach's arrest. But there was a problem. 
the evidence connecting Roach to Bruno's murder wasn't strong enough to justify a warrant. So they devised a workaround. Roach had been on parole when he fled to Florida, so he was now in violation of that parole. So the Massachusetts DA charged him with the parole violation and the vandalism of Emo's bar and issued an arrest warrant. And then the federal government issued its own warrant. We can attach what's called a unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, which is commonly referred to as a UFAP. And that allowed us to go and, and search and look and try to assist in trying to locate and arrest Frankie Roach. And once a judge signed off on those warrants, they were ready to strike. And it was here that the cooperation between the FBI and the police really paid off. We contacted the FBI Tampa office, gave them the information, giving them lawful powers to go out and conduct a fugitive investigation. So they went out. But the arrest didn't go as planned. I was sitting at home and got a call from my supervisor, and he said, he's sitting down. And I took a seat, and he said, you're not going to believe this. Frankie Roach just got shot by FBI Tampa. And I'm like, oh, gosh. Unfortunately, they, one of the SWAT members had an accidental discharge, an AD, of his rifle and put a round into the lower back of Frankie Roach. How did the shooting happen exactly? Is he trying to get away? Is he fighting them? No, he actually, he wasn't. He was um, compliant, as we say, in the business. And he was actually laid out on the floor in the lobby area of this home. And um, the SWAT members, when they were rolling their rifle over their shoulder to attempt to handcuff him, there was an accidental discharge. I asked Tom Murphy about that moment. I mean, were you scared he would die? I was certainly hoping he wouldn't because, you know, the whole case is kind of over. If de- I mean, dead men tell no tales. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's 
S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. He got shot right in the back, and he bled. He bled quite a bit. The FBI officer I spoke with, he says there was no blood left in him when the ambulance got here. That's Thomas Maliti again, the Springfield homicide detective. When the news broke, he received a call from the district attorney. He says, you're going down to Florida right now. Pack your bags, just go. I already got a flight for you now. 90 minutes later, Maliti and his partner were on a plane down to Florida. When they arrived, their first stop was Roach's hospital room. He was handcuffed to the bed. We went in and we talked to him. He was, I mean, he was hurt. He was under heavy medication and all. But he was, he could talk to us. They told Roach that they had a warrant for his arrest for malicious damage to Emo's bar. He kind of smiled at us. He looked at us. He goes, I might not be too bright, he goes, but he says, I know one thing. You sure as hell ain't the malicious damage police. And you didn't come down here to talk to me about wrecking any bar. (laughs) I said, well, Frankie, we're going to talk about that later. He said, okay. In the weeks after the cop's visit, Roach underwent a string of surgeries. The bullet ripped through both his large and small intestines, and the scar tissue was causing intestinal blockages. After a few months in the hospital, Roach was finally starting to recover, and his doctors said he could travel. So once again, Maliti and his partner flew down to Tampa. But this time, they went to bring the fugitive back to Springfield and try to convince him to cooperate. He was in tough shape. I mean, he had a real hard time walking. We put on a uh, thing you put on a knee where if you try to run, it straightens your leg out. So you'd have to run with a straight leg. Put that on him so he didn't have anything else impeding him. We brought him to the airport and uh, got him on the plane. A few hours later, the plane touched down at Bradley International Airport about 20 minutes outside of Springfield. Turns out, the local police got word that the Springfield PD was transporting a fugitive and they decided to help out. They may have overdone it a bit. We come off the plane, there's like 50 troopers out there with guns and dogs, and I'm like, oh my God. I mean, I was like getting embarrassed. I'm like, what the heck? We went through the airport, it was like the parting of the seas. Everybody's looking at us like, what the heck's going on with this? Eventually, they made it out of the airport terminal. Malidi and his partner placed Roach in the backseat of a car and drove him to Springfield. They stopped at Wendy's and bought him a burger. This wasn't just because Roach was hungry. They wanted to get him in a good mood. Then they took him to the station for questioning. We threw it out there to him, said, hey, Frankie, you could you know, work yourself a pretty good deal. The deal Malidi is talking about is a cooperation agreement. If someone accused of a crime has information that can help investigators, prosecutors will often offer them a shorter prison sentence in exchange for that information. In this case, the investigators wanted some answers. Did Roach kill Bruno alone, or was he just a small piece in a more complex conspiracy? But investigators didn't get their questions answered that day. Roach turned down the deal. He thought he could beat the case, so he stayed silent and was shipped off to the medical ward of a state prison. Brian Warren, the FBI agent, remembers that Roach needed a lot of surgeries. He had an incredible amount of medical services needed. There was quite a period of time there where he was just trying to recover to even be available to face a criminal trial. 
enough time, it turned out, for local prosecutors to gather enough evidence to finally charge Roach with Al Bruno's murder. Roach's trial on state-level murder charges was scheduled for April 2007, almost three years after his arrest. As that date approached, Stephanie Barry, the crime reporter, was pumped. I get to state court on the day jury selection is supposed to begin, like it's Christmas. You know, I get there with bells on. I'm so excited. But before jury selection began, something odd happened. The prosecution and the defense attorneys asked for a sidebar with the judge. Barry remembers them speaking in private for a long time. And the judge suddenly comes back on the bench and says, okay, this case is continued indefinitely. Then when I went out into the hallway to approach the assistant DA at the time, he barked at me, no comment, and went stalking down the hallway. And I thought, well, that just sealed it right there. He's cooperating. <laughs> the evening before the trial, he decided to cooperate and give us everything he knew. Why did Roach change his mind at the 11th hour? Well, according to Brian Warren, even fugitives can find love. While he was on the run, literally a day or two after he committed the murder, he's taken out of state and spends time in New York and Tampa, Florida. He ends up meeting a woman and actually married her and having a child. When Roach first got arrested, he didn't really think about its impact on his new family. I think just being in prison and off the streets, he was becoming more mature and, and an understanding of his predicament and his new family were probably the big factors. The big factors in what makes cooperation worth it. So Roach let the prosecutors know he was ready to make a deal. Obviously very excited the whole team was and you know, you really look for these breaks in an investigation and, and get to that point where you're going to hear the story. The district attorney met with Roach in what we call a proffer session to find out what he knew. Officer Murphy also met with Roach a few times. He was struck by Roach's personality, or lack thereof. Not a jovial guy by any stretch. He's not an emotional kid. You ask him a question... He'd give you a direct answer. Just stone cold, matter of fact, no emotions. Right away, Roach admitted that he shot Al Bruno. Warren and Murphy remember Roach telling the story. Frankie gets word that, yes, Al's down at the Mount Carmel Sudge playing cards. So Frankie goes and he sits in the back area of the Mount Carmel Club. And then finally, Al comes out. Bruno had like a Z71 Chevy Suburban, and Frankie said he saw the interior lights come on, and Frank just starts coming up out of the dark. And Frankie approaches him, and then Frankie says, I heard you're looking for me. Al has no idea who it is at first. He goes, hey, buddy. Frankie said he just comes up, and he, he brings up the 45 and just lights him up, drops him right there. He shot and killed him right there by his car. Well, it was huge because, you know, we certainly thought it was him, 
But obviously, you know, no sooner did you hear that than you wanted a hell of a lot more. Like, how much can we develop this? What was the real story? What was the motivation? Was he put up to it? So they asked, why'd you kill Bruno? Was it over Emo's bar? He said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. This had nothing to do with retaliation of the bar or any of that. That's where he opened the floodgates and said, I got paid by Freddie Gius to carry this out. Freddie Gius, the older of the two Gius brothers. Freddie Gius approached him and they actually had their meeting on it in the Basketball Hall of Fame parking lot down in Springfield, Mass. Roach said that Freddie Gius offered him $10,000 to kill Al Bruno. Gius told him the order came from Bruno's trusted right-hand man, Anthony Arolata. This was big, but it didn't stop there. Arolata was just the messenger. His orders came from up top. Anthony Arolata was told by his superiors in New York. New York, as in the headquarters of the entire Genovese crime family. Holy shit. It blew the roof off. It, it turned into the conspiracy that we had anticipated all along that it would involve. Things were just starting to come together and gel the way that you could only hope they would. That was certainly a significant day. Our goal was to work up the ladder. We knew that Frankie Roach was the first peg that we needed to get through to get where we thought we needed to get to. There was only one problem. Roach didn't know who in New York had ordered the hit. He answered quite a bit, but he couldn't take us all the way home, as they like to say. He was definitely the, the first domino. It added a lot of energy to the investigation. We got a shot here, but we just got to continue to march. Because Roach never spoke directly with Arolata or anyone in New York about killing Bruno, the police only had enough evidence to go after one other person, Freddie Gius. Within the same month that Frankie decides to tell us his story, we end up charging Freddie Gius federally for murder for hire in Springfield in April of 2007. Investigators arrested Freddie Gius and brought him to the station for questioning. They hoped he'd make a deal like Frankie Roach and cooperate. They wanted Gius to be the second domino. But it turned out he and his brother had a strict code. Very, very proud of their Greek heritage and their ability that they do not cooperate, rat on anybody. And I can remember him voicing that strong sediment that they are Greek and they are far stronger than any Italians and that they would never fold and cooperate. Freddie Gius never broke his code of silence. No matter how many times investigators offered him a deal, he always turned them down. Without Gius, it seemed no more dominoes were going to fall, and the investigation was stalled out. But the prosecution had one more angle they could work, one that could still take them up the ladder, to Anthony Arolata. Right then and there, I was like, boom. It was like my the, the world was over. It was like... You know, and now I'm thinking, I'm thinking when I go outside the club, there's going to be like 30 agents out there to arrest me. On the next 
up against the mob. I remember I get up, I whisper in his ear, uh, I'm not talking about none of that stuff. Why'd you whisper in his ear? Because I always assume people have wires on, but just so this moron would know that I'm not talking about it, I just told him in his ear, I'm not talking about none of that stuff. For more wild stories about the Springfield Mafia and the inside scoop on how prosecutors go up against the mob, become a member of Cafe Insider. For a limited time, you can get 40% off on your first year of annual membership. Head to cafe.com slash mob and get access to all exclusive cafe content. That's cafe.com slash mob. A very special thanks to the crime reporter, Stephanie Barry. Her articles in The Republican and MassLive.com were an invaluable resource. Up Against the Mob is a production of Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matthew Billy is the senior producer and writer. Adam Waller and Noah Azalai are the producers. Isaac Kestenbaum is our editor. Lissa Soep is our story consultant. This episode was mixed and sound designed by David Tadashur. Original score composed by Nat Wiener. Tamara Sepper and Art Chung are the executive producers. I'm Ellie Honig. If you enjoyed this episode, hit follow in your listening app. You can also write a review and let us know what you thought of the show. Thanks for listening. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.